All right, as I said, we are in Acts chapter 4. We're going to pick up around verse 32 today. We've looked at a few of these verses already. Now, it's been three weeks since we were last together in Acts because we took a week off uh, on what we call Palm Sunday. We spent some time considering what was going on during Holy Week, and last week, of course, was Easter. It was such a good, sweet time. I hope you were blessed. I was just blessed to be in the presence of people excited about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the impact of the resurrection on our hearts. And so hopefully you were encouraged by that. But today we're going to return back uh, to Acts um, chapter 4. And we're going to pick up starting in verse 32. So let me read um, from there. It says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, where it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, if some of that sounds familiar to you, it it probably does so because it's very similar to what we read in Acts chapter 2. Look over, if you will, to chapter 2, starting in verse 42, or actually a little bit after that. But in Acts chapter 2, verses 44, 45, this is what Luke said then. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any that had need. Very similar. And so you look at it and you're like, all right, why tell me that again, Luke? Why was the need necessarily for Luke to share those things again for us? And what I'm going to suggest to you is because the last few verses of chapter 4 are meant to lead us into and to contrast with the events of Acts chapter 5. And so Luke here, at the end of chapter 4, he takes a few moments to sort of paint this sweet, glorious, wonderful picture of the way in which the church was responding to the needs of other members within the church, and particularly this fellow by the name of Barnabas. And he's going to contrast that in chapter 5 with another individual, or in that case a couple, a fellow by the name of Ananias and his wife Sapphira. And so we're going to dig into it. So again, if it sounds familiar, it is familiar. But the reason why I think our friend Luke is doing that is to really set up this contrast between the two individuals. What Luke wants to do in Acts chapter 4 is to demonstrate the impact that God was having on the early church. And so what God is doing in this early church is he's creating such an intense sense of responsibility that this member has for that member. That's that member's problem, but it becomes this member's problem and concern as well. And God is doing that work within them as he's knitting this body of believers together, where individuals feel compelled to meet the needs that other members of the congregation have. One of the most important things that we're going to take note of today is that compulsion isn't an exterior compulsion. Peter doesn't stand up. Uh, Matthew doesn't stand up. Any of the other apostles don't stand up and say, all right, I'm going to need you guys to start selling your possessions and bring the goods here so we can provide for other people. It's not an external compulsion at all. It's an internal compulsion. It's a motivation from within to do this particular thing. That's very important for us 
to take notice of. So reading again 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many were, as were owners of the lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each one as they had need. Now in the original Greek, we have a, a tense usage, which is helpful for us because sometimes it, it gives us a, a greater sense of the meaning of the passage than perhaps just the words do. And this is one of those instances. And so we have a, a tense usage that demonstrates that the selling of the property and the bringing of the, the resources and giving to them to the apostles was not something that happened universally at one time. So there was no announcement, we need everybody to sell what you own and bring the cash here. There was no announcement. It wasn't a universal thing that happened all at once, but rather it was this thing that was occurring here, and then it happened over there, and then it happened over there, as people were motivated by God to do that particular thing they would go, they'd sell their extra resources, they'd give them to the apostles so that they could be distributed to those that had need. Now, why so many needs? Why does everybody have needs that we have to be selling our property and providing for them? Well, I remind you, we are in Jerusalem. We are essentially following the days of Pentecost where thousands of people came to know the Lord. These are people that had traveled from all over the world to come celebrate the Jewish holiday of Passover, God poured out his spirit and the church was born. And many of those individuals stayed there in Jerusalem so that they could learn of the apostles. I don't know about you, if you've ever gone on a vacation, you bring a certain amount of cash with you, or you have in your mind, all right, this is how much we can spend on this particular vacation, and soon enough, you run out of money. You don't have a place to go home to stay. You got a hotel, and every night it's costing you a little bit more, and you got to eat out, and all these kinds of things. And so the people began to run out of funds. And so their needs needed to be met as they stayed there in Jerusalem to learn and to grow, and then eventually to bring their faith back with them to wherever it is that they had come from. I think an additional motivation for why people were so willing to sell their properties is not just to meet the needs of those they cared for, it's certainly so, but I think an additional motivation, what did Jesus say was going to happen within Jerusalem within a generation? He said it would fall. Jerusalem would be attacked. Enemy conquerors would come in. This is Matthew chapter 24. And so I think there may be this sense of, well, it's all going to burn anyway. It's all going to be taken away anyway. What's the, I might as well use it for good now. And so people have this, another inner motivation. You know what? Let's meet the needs of those that have them. And so we have a, an unusual example that is uh, put forth, maybe not unusual, an extraordinary example of giving that is placed before us here in this passage. And one of the examples that we're given is this fellow by the name of Joseph. Now, there's a lot of Josephs in the Bible. And so the apostles came to know of this Joseph by the name of class. Barnabas. And we know Barnabas. If you've read the book of Acts, you know that he appears again and again later on as we move through the book of Acts. The name Barnabas means encourager or the son of encouragement. And so Barnabas was a fellow that stood out. The apostles took note of him. The apostle says, man, you're awesome. I appreciate you. You know, when people leave your presence, they leave encouraged. And we see later in the book of Acts, he, one of the ways in which he did that was by talking, by communicating, by demonstrating. So there was a time later on in the book of Acts where the apostles, or people I should say, the Christians 
were a little leery of Paul. Saul was this rabbi that had been killing Christians. He got converted. He came to the faith. He now was kind of joining the church, and people were afraid of him. Now, I see where this is going. He's trying to infiltrate us. He's, you know, undercover. He's going to get us, and then he's going to kill all of us. And so people were reluctant to welcome Paul into their fellowship. Barnabas comes alongside, puts his arm around him, addresses the congregation. I know this man. You can trust him. He was an encourager in that sense. And here in Acts chapter 4, it seems that his encouragement was he saw the needs that people had, and he said, Lord, what, how would you have me to help? And God began to move on his heart. He sold some property. He brought the money. I'm just happy to meet your need here. He gave it to the apostles so that they could be blessed. Barnabas is an, an example of a generous giver. As we look here at Ananias in the next chapter, we'll get to right now, he's the exact opposite of that. Barnabas is a fella who I'm quite certain didn't do this so everybody could see him. But people began to take notice. Word began to filter out. He became known as Mr. Encouragement, as we see there in verse 36. And in that process of where people took notice, there were two individuals that also took notice. It's a husband and wife team, Ananias and his wife. Her name is Sapphira. And we can imagine, based on what we read in the next chapter, them sitting off on the side, them seeing Barnabas interacting with the apostles, the apostles shaking his hand, you know, patting him on the back, Barnabas leaving, one of the apostles turning to the other. I really appreciate this guy. He's a sweet brother. He encourages me so much. And Ananias and Sapphira sitting over on the side are seeing that, and they begin to think, they begin to wonder, man, you know what? I would love for people to pat me on the back. I would love for people to think I'm super spiritual. I would love for people to think of me the way they think of and talk about this guy Barnabas. And they go home and they hatch a plan. They come up with this particular plan. Because what they're thinking is, I wish people were praising us. And I wish people thought that we were super spiritual as they do Barnabas. They wanted to be like Barnabas without, without actually being like Barnabas. Are you with me? And so we read this. Let's read their story. We'll start in chapter 5, verse 1. In one second. It says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained with you, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart, you have not lied to men, but to God. And when, and now catch this, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men, they rose and they wrapped him up and they carried him out and they buried him. Keep in mind in that culture, uh, it was, and even today in the Jewish culture, as much as possible, it's expected to be buried before sundown of the day that you died, if at all possible. Uh, and so they did that with this gentleman. They buried him right away, uh, almost immediately. 
Continuing, let me read the rest of the story so we can put it all in the context. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell down at his feet, and she breathed her last. And when the young man came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out, and they buried her beside her husband. And great fear, you can imagine, came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is one of those examples of the honesty of the Bible. The people that set out to write the Bible, people like Luke and Peter and James and John and others and Matthew, as they set out to write the Bible, they didn't leave the bad stuff out. They put it all in. This wasn't some goal on their part to sort of paint the glories of the early Christian church or the Old Testament Jews or something like that. They were just open and honest with what it was that God would lay on their hearts to put out there. And so here, Luke could have easily left this account out of the story of Acts, and we would have, none of us would have known the difference. And yet Luke shares this particular story with us. The Bible refuses to present sort of this idealized picture of its heroes. And even in the early church, there were uh, problems, even in the early church. And we see here the problem, if you will, of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, the first word of the chapter should give us an indicator of the ominous direction that things are going. My version, first word, it starts with the word but. Perhaps yours is something similar, or at some point in time, it pops up in the verse. But a man named Ananias. So as we bring chapter 4 to a close, everything is great, everything is amazing, everything is wonderful. God is doing such a great work within the hearts of people, and he's moving. Chapter 5, but there was a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. Now, that doesn't look so good. That doesn't sound so good, does it? No, thank you <laughs> very much here. It's a quiet crowd. So it's important for us to dig into this passage a little bit and learn from the negative, even as we dig in the passages and we look to learn from the positive example of a guy like Barnabas, um, for instance. Now, one thing I, I do hope we all walk away from our time here together this morning with is this. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira is not that they decided to keep a portion of their um, proceeds back for themselves. That's not the problem of this particular passage. The problem or the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is that they lied about it, that they tried to paint this picture that they were something that they were not, that they were trying to appear more religious than they actually were. That's what's at issue here. What's at issue here is not selfishness and greed. So that's not the lesson that we want to learn from this. Don't be selfish or greedy or God will strike you down. That's not the lesson that is being communicated at all. What's being communicated here is be on your guard against hypocrisy and pride. That was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, hypocrisy and pride. Are you okay? Amen. Amen. I'm with you. So these guys, they sell their possession. They give a portion of it to the church, but they imply that they're giving it all to the church. 
so that people will take note of them. People will pat them on the back. People will say, wow, you're so spiritual. You, you trust God so much. I wish I could trust God like you do. Those are the types of things that they are looking for to hear from others. These guys are hypocrites in the ranks of the church. Now, a hypocrite. A hypocrite is one that pretends to be something that they are not. That's what a hypocrite is, one that pretends to be something that they are not. The, the English word that we have, hypocrite, it actually comes from a Greek word which means to wear a mask, to put a mask on so that you can be something that you are not. In the days of the original Greek, uh, ancient Greek, the word was used to describe the stage actor who would put a mask on and take on the persona of that mask. And you've probably seen, I think we have a slide here of a picture, you've, you've probably seen these things when you go to a, a Broadway play or if you were in high school drama or something like that. You've seen those. And so you throw on the happy face mask because that's the part you're playing. You throw on the sad face mask or the angry mask because that's the part you're going to play. A hypocrite then is an actor that is pretending to be something or someone that they are not. And the church is oftentimes criticized as having a whole bunch of hypocrites. Well, I don't want to go to that church because it's filled with hypocrites, people will say. That may or may not be the case. That may be the case of some churches. That has not been my experience with this church. And that's not been my experience with the churches that I have gone to. They haven't been filled with hypocrites. And somebody will say, wait a minute, I've seen, I saw that guy. He acts like he's spiritual, but I saw him curse at someone while he was driving. And they cut in front of him, he cursed. He's a hypocrite. That's not necessarily a hypocrite. Don't do it. I don't think you should do it. But that's not necessarily what makes a person a hypocrite. A hypocrite is not someone who believes something and then falls short of that belief. Because if that was true, we would all be hypocrites. We all believe, I would hope, that sin is bad. And yet we acknowledge with the scripture that we struggle with sin and that we fall into sin from time to time. Falling short doesn't make a person a hypocrite. It makes a person human. Even the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 7, admitted that the things he wanted to do, he failed to do. And that the things he didn't want to do anymore, he found himself doing those things. Romans 7, 14, we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. I am sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Has that been your experience, believer? That's, that's what it means to be a believer, that we struggle with sin and we fight against sin. Now, it's very important for us to remind ourselves, Paul wasn't a hypocrite. Paul was a sinner. He was a sinner in the process of saying no to his flesh and yes to the leading of the Spirit. Now, at the same time, I also want to say this. Paul didn't just say, well, I'm only human. Do his own thing, go his own direction. Well, what do you expect from me? I'm just a man. You know, and temptation and all those kinds of things. Paul would say this in another place. So rather than just settling into failure, Paul would say this, Philippians. Brothers, I do not consider that I made it my own, but one thing I do, he says, forgetting what lies behind, my past, 
and straining forward to what lies ahead, he said, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. So did Paul sin? Yes. Was Paul content in that sin? Absolutely not. Paul pressed on. When Paul did sin, Paul confessed his sin. Paul would say no to his flesh. Paul would seek to walk and, in fact, run his race unhindered by his sin. So Paul's not a hypocrite. Paul's human. But again, what a hypocrite is, is not somebody who merely doesn't live up to their belief system. What a hypocrite is, is a person that says one thing but does another. A, a hypocrite is one who pretends. A hypocrite is one who puts on the masks and, mask and plays a part. And that's what Ananias and Sapphira are doing. They're not a couple that are struggling with doing what they don't want to be doing. Rather, they are being the true meaning of the word hypocrite. They're pretenders. They're actors. Pretending to be more spiritual than they are. They're fleshly motivated individuals trying to impress others. And this is the means by which they're going to do so. Now, there's quite a debate as to whether Ananias and Sapphira are actually believers. There are some that think they weren't even believers. They were just fakes in the church altogether. And then there are others that say, no, they're believers. They got off track with sin and hypocrisy. We don't know the answer, actually. We can fight about it. We can yell at it uh, and things like that. But we don't really know the answer. And so you can kind of settle into whichever those two views. But I've seen fakes in the church that don't even know the Lord, but hey, this is a great place to network and to make contacts and you know, to pass out my business card and make a lot of money. I've seen people that come to church for that purpose. I've seen people that are walking with the Lord and they get sidetracked by hypocrisy. And so it could be either of those scenarios that we have here. So whatever you think it is, think of it that way, all right? But here we have Ananias and Sapphira, and I'll read again. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet, Excuse me. thinking people were going to pat him on the back, people were going to congratulate him. That's not at all what happened. God began to minister to Peter's heart. Peter, one of the apostles, seated somewhere, and the people come before them. Bring this gift here. This is the proceeds, you know, from our land. And God is working on Peter's heart, and Peter is led to confront Ananias. And notice what he says to him. Ananias, he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Notice Peter doesn't ask Ananias here, he already knows the answer. God had revealed it to Peter in a, in a miraculous way. This is, I would suggest to you, what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and what Paul refers to, as you can see the verse there, an utterance of knowledge, or some call it a word of knowledge. It was a supernatural knowledge of an event that Peter shouldn't have known but God, by his Holy Spirit, let Peter know in this particular instance. Peter knew that Ananias was trying to snow the church, was trying to deceive the church so that people would be more impressed with Ananias. And Peter calls out Ananias. Please, again, notice 
Peter does not call out Ananias merely about keeping some back for himself. But as it says there in the middle of verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? That's what Peter calls Ananias out on, that he lied to the Holy Spirit. A couple of things I want you to notice about this. And I feel like today's study is going to be a whole bunch of random things that I observe and I notice. Um, just bear with me, all right? I, I feel like it's choppy, all right? But hang in there with me. First thing, let's notice this. Um, he says, Satan has filled your heart. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan has taken possession of Ananias and was now able to move his hands around and his arms around and all kinds of stuff, or that Satan made Ananias and his wife do what they did. Because look at verse 4. Down in verse 4, he says, And you have contrived this deed in your heart. So Satan filled the heart of Ananias, as the text says, and yet Peter goes on to ask the question why he, why Ananias, contrived this thing within his heart. You see the connection there? So Satan put the thoughts, Satan put the ideas, Satan began to move in the heart of Ananias, but it was Ananias' decision to continue to go forth. So what we learn in our study of the scriptures is that Satan, or his demons, whatever it might be, Satan can influence the life of a believer. But Satan cannot force a believer to actually do the sinning. He'll never be able to do the sinning for you or even to make you to sin. So Satan, he begins to stir the thoughts and the feelings and the desires of Ananias. But it's Ananias that is the one that actually comes up with this idea and actually goes forward to execute this idea. In the, the book of Ephesians chapter 6, we read about spiritual warfare. And I'd encourage you, become familiar with what the Bible teaches regarding spiritual warfare, because the reality is all of us that are believers in Jesus Christ are engaged in a spiritual battle. And in, in Ephesians chapter 6, as we're learning about spiritual warfare, Paul uses a phrase, he, he refers to what he calls the flaming darts of the evil one. I'll read the verse. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I would suggest to you, those are these thoughts, excuse me, that enter into our, our, our minds, into our hearts. These are the things that kind of come out of nowhere. And so you're humming along, and the Lord is good, and, and everything, and you're just, all of a sudden, it enters in. You're like, where did that come from? Now, sometimes... Your thoughts are your thoughts. Sometimes it's a reminder of something you did a long time ago, and that enters back in. Sometimes your brain just goes down a particular path. But there are other times where these thoughts enter into us, and you almost have to pull back, and you're like, where did that come from? Well, don't be surprised if it's an example of spiritual warfare. Times when unknowingly we are engaged in a battle. And Satan begins to shoot his flaming darts, his flaming arrows into your heart and into your mind. That's what I think we're seeing here in this particular passage. It's entering into our friend Ananias' heart and mind, his wife Sapphira's heart and mind. And this is why Paul would tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 
is that we take every thought captive to Christ. Paul says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So just because you think it, whether it uh, originated from your own mind or it's something that is thrown in there from the world, the flesh, or the devil, we take it captive to Christ. Is that from you, Lord? Is this, is this what you would have me to think? Is this the direction you would have me to go? Satan here, he shoots his metaphorical arrow toward Ananias. And Ananias's response should have been to extinguish the, extinguish the flaming arrow, to stop it at its inception, to say to himself, no, no, we're not going there. We're not going to entertain this. How can I be awesome and everybody have my attention, which was the flaming thought that came into his mind. Ananias doesn't do that. Instead, we can imagine what Ananias does is he turns over to his wife and he glances at her and he says, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And she says, I think I am. Let's go home and hatch out the plan. And together they begin to go down that road. Satan perhaps put them on that road or Satan shined a bright light on that particular road, but it was their decision to go down that path. Look, Satan doesn't want the church of Jesus Christ to thrive, nor does he want you as an individual saint, as part of the church, to thrive in your walk with Jesus Christ. And that's what's happening in Acts. In Acts chapter 3, Act 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, the church is thriving. Thousands are coming to the faith. They're loving one another as God would have the church to love one another. Great things are happening. It's what we would all long for in a body of believers that we are a part of. And Satan takes notice of it. And he goes on the, the attack. Satan does not want the church of Jesus Christ to thrive. He does not want the individual saint of Jesus Christ to thrive. And so if you're doing pretty well in your walk with Jesus right now, realize the devil might take notice of that. He might turn his attention to you. What is a way that perhaps I can trip them up and to get them off track? Now, in Acts chapter 3 and 4, Satan attacked from outside. He brought heavy persecution. If you preach another thing in this man's name, if you even talk about this man again with somebody else, we're going to throw you in jail. That was an outside attack. Many people would be like, well, you know what? I'm not doing that again. And he would stop the work. Peter and John were like, this is fantastic. They went back, told all their friends, we were persecuted for Jesus. It didn't work. So Satan switches his plan. He doesn't attack them from the outside. What's he do now? He attacks them from the inside. He sits a person right down there in some of the seats of the church who may have the potential. Excuse me, I'm in trouble here. Be careful. Um, he sits a person right down there in the church that may have the, uh, the ability or the potential to divide the church, to separate the church, to get people's eyes off of heaven and around on each one. Satan attacks from without, Satan attacks from within because his goal is the same. How can I stop this church or this individual from thriving in their walk with the Lord? So if you're doing great in the Lord, Praise the Lord. But no, that opens you up to attack. Because why would Satan bother somebody that's not doing so well with the things of the Lord? They're already at the place that he wants them to be. Now, some of you are probably hearing this and you're thinking, oh, great. 
just what I need, an attack, you know. Um, well, whether I told you or not, <laughs> that's how it works, all right? So at least now you know, and now you can be aware. And it's not meant to scare you. It's not to bring you to the end of your rope where you just want to sort of give up. It's to make you aware. Many, many years after this, the Apostle Peter, who is sort of a central figure in our story this morning, 25, 30 years after this, Peter would write these words. It was an admonition to those he was writing to. And he said this, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. How's that for encouragement this morning? All right. But we need to learn. We need to know the truth. What Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It's ours to be aware and then to be on our guard against the enemy that, that seeks to destroy us. And then, since Satan is stronger, smarter than any one of us, since he is more cunning than any one of us are astute at being able to see his schemes, and because he is more patient than we tend to be, it is ours to resist him. Don't get into a debate with him. Don't reason with him. Don't say, well, I'm strong enough. I can withstand. Go ahead and bring your temptation. You know, sometimes we just pick up and run, like Joseph did in the Old Testament. When the temptation becomes too strong, we just get out of there. Well, that'll make me look like a wimp. You are a wimp, all right? And that's okay, all right? We want to remain standing, and that may have to be in a different room altogether. And so we resist the devil. We submit ourselves, therefore, to the Lord. This, that's what James said. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee. He'll move on. He's got other things to worry about and to deal with. You resist him, and again, that might mean getting up and running. Now, I don't want to spend all day talking about Satan. That's not very encouraging or exciting um, for us as believers. But I do think there are a couple of lessons that we can observe with the way that Satan uh, acts, the way in which he engages in battle. And the first one is this. I've said it already. Whenever God is working amongst his people or in your individual life, the devil will always stand opposed to that work. All right. And so that's the first thing that we know. Second thing, I've already mentioned this as well, that opposition, it may come in the form of outward attack. So the world is out to get us and, and those things. We saw that in chapter three and four of, of Acts with the persecution and so on. So sometimes the attack on the church will be outside. It'll intimidate people. They'll kind of run to their corners. They'll go, they'll hide so that no one will bother them. But other times the attack, as I said, is from within, as we see in this particular instance here. Here, Satan is trying to weaken the church by tainting the purity of the church. Now, the third thing that we, we take notice of is this. Satan used a seemingly small, insignificant thing to uh, attack these two believers. So Satan doesn't like fill their hearts, I want you to go in and murder everybody. That would be a big thing. Instead, he uses a little white lie. Just a little white lie is what he uses. And I think some of us, if, is this the first time anyone's heard this story? Anybody, a few of you? 
The first time you heard this story, perhaps you thought, well, that's kind of harsh. God striking them down dead for telling a little white lie? Both the Lord and Satan know, however, the significant impact a quote-unquote little white lie can have. And so Satan moves with just this small little thing. Think of the way that Satan divides churches in our day. He wreaks havoc, gossip. People just start talking about one another. And then this group over here begins to form, and that group over there begins to form, and this group sees that group talking. They don't know what they're talking about, but of course, they're gossiping. And so now we're divided. Slander, lies, as we see here. Satan works through pride, and he begins to stir up a pride within people. Satan works through unforgiveness to divide a body of believers, as people are just not willing to let that go, to get past that, and to forgive even as they themselves has been forgiven. For some, it's just innocent flirting. As this guy here, just a little innocent flirting with that gal over there. And we know where that leads and the way that divides and rips apart a church. Satan doesn't come in saying, I'm going to set off a bomb here. He starts with something very little, some seemingly insignificant thing that you're not going to take very seriously. It's going to be fine. I can handle it. And that is what he uses. And so, brother and sister, if I might exhort you and myself, even as Peter exhorted his readers, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring, lying, seeking whom he might devour. That includes you. Be on your guard. Now, going back to Peter's words, notice Peter says to him, Ananias, you lied to the Holy Spirit. This tells us something about Ananias, or excuse me, Peter's understanding of who the Spirit of God is. Peter says you lied to the Holy Spirit. That tells us Peter knew that the Holy Spirit was a being. He wasn't some force. And so you wouldn't come into the house and say, you lied to the electricity today. Because that's a force. It's a being that can be lied to or grieved, as it tells us in another place uh, in the scriptures. And so we see here that our friend Peter saw the Holy Spirit as a personal being. In our Bibles, we learn the Holy Spirit can be grieved, Ephesians 4.30. The work of the Holy Spirit can be quenched, Acts chapter 7, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 5, uh, 2. It can be resisted, Acts 7. We learn in Hebrews chapter 10 that the Holy Spirit can be insulted. And so he's a person. The second thing that we discover with Peter's understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, is what he writes in the next verse in chapter 4. So remember, in chapter 3, he said, you lied to the Holy Spirit in uh, verse 3. In verse 4, he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. And so he says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he says, you lied to God. His understanding is that the Holy Spirit is God. Second or third person of the Trinity is Peter's understanding of who the Holy Spirit actually is. He's a being and he's the Lord. Continuing, Ananias and his wife, they didn't have to sell their property, as we saw. Nobody made them, nobody dictated, everybody sell your property. Nobody even said, Look, if you really want to show your commitment to our church, sell your property. Nobody said any of those things. 
they hatched this scheme uh, on their own. Peter says that. Look, verse 4. He says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Right? Nobody made them do what it was. But because they were hypocrites, because they wanted to appear to be something that they were not, because they loved to have the applause of men, they played the hypocrite. Forgetting, what I hope we will never forget, is God hates hypocrisy. You recall Jesus as he walked the earth. Some of his most scathing criticism were of the religious leaders who were hypocrites. We read this in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Now, to say woe is essentially to say go to hell or you're going to go to hell. So he says woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. He says you're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything that is unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy. Those are harsh words from the Lord, aren't they? And they're saved for the hypocrite. God hates hypocrisy. And I wonder if sometimes we are at risk as Christians today, 2100 here, whatever, 2021, if we are at risk of doing the same type of thing as Ananias and Sapphira. Now, almost certainly, it's not selling your property, taking the cash, bringing it in, pretending it was worth more than it actually was. That may not be the particular thing that you struggle with. But how many times, as Christians, have you and I pretended to be a bit more godly or a bit more spiritual than we actually are so that people would think well of us? We need to be on our guard. How often have we created, or maybe if it wasn't even our intention, allowed the impression that we are super Bible readers or super prayers that everybody else should be impressed with? Or how often do we look for ways to perform our good deeds, not so obvious that people would know we're doing it this, for this reason, but in a way that other people will see it so that they will think well of us or even hopefully tell everybody good things about us. You see, we can struggle with these things as well. Correct? Am I the only one? We need to be on our guard against these types of things. Sometimes even we, we act as if we have it all together when in reality we don't. But we come to the, the meeting and how you doing? Great. Praise the Lord. He's the best. Instead of just being honest and saying, it was a hard week. It's really, really? I would never expect that from you. I thought you were so spiritual. See, we want people to think that of us. We need to be on our guard. Ananias and Sapphira. Now, going back to the passage, look at verse 5. So Ananias heard these words. He fell down. He breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Now, the, now, please notice this. The text doesn't say that Peter pronounced a death sentence on Ananias. 
Peter didn't strike him down dead. He didn't shoot lightning from his hand or anything like that. Notice what it says. When, he, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. So God either struck him down um, supernaturally or supernaturally through a natural event like a heart attack, he was struck down. And he went crashing down to the ground and he breathed his last. And the, if the hope of his being recognized by everyone as being super spiritual was a driving, motivating factor in his life, just imagine what being exposed as a sham and a fraud in front of everybody would have done for this particular guy. And it seems it overwhelmed him, his heart stopped, he went crashing down, and he died. The Lord either took him out or he died of some natural cause just at the right time. But either way, it's clear that God was not willing to look past this, again, this little white lie, particularly not at this particular juncture. I read a commentator, he said this, if God's work was going to continue on, either the Holy Spirit would have to go or Ananias would have to go. But they couldn't continue on together. And of course, Ananias was the one who had to leave. Now, I agree, this is a harsh penalty. And it's a harsh penalty for a sin that seems to be small, seems to be somewhat normal. I gave you some examples a moment ago, and people were kind of nodding their head, yeah, I did that. I've done that one too. And so we're happy that we're not struck down. And so some wonder if God was not too harsh in his response at this particular point in time. And I'll remind you, the greater wonder is that we're not all struck down dead. When we misrepresent ourselves and we misrepresent the Lord in front of others, or we seek to draw the glory to ourselves instead of where it belongs with the Lord. It, truth be told, Ananias received exactly what Ananias deserved. But, what, but again... Not everybody is struck down like this in the Bible or in our lives. I think what we're seeing here is what some have called the principle of precedence, the principle of precedence. And what the principle of precedence is, is that God will make a strong statement at one point in time that is to be remembered and applied to all points in time. And as we study through the scriptures, one of the things we see that often God makes this statement at the origin of something new. Leviticus chapter 10. A little, we took notice of this when we were studying through the book of Leviticus on Wednesday nights. Leviticus chapter 10. The very first chapter following the one where God delivered to Moses and delivered to the high priest Aaron the means by which he was to be worshipped. This is how it's to be done. Everybody understands the priest is to do this, not other people, and so on. It's all laid out there. In Leviticus 10, the very first chapter following that information, Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, they decide that they're going to do something different. And God strikes them down. We read this. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they each took their own censer, and they put fire in it, and they laid incense on it, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Some of your versions, and you may have heard this phrase, they offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. God's response, and the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. That's a strong response. Principle of precedence. A hundred years later, 
the people of Israel, they come into the promised land, this land that God had spoken to Abraham about 700 years earlier, that they had been journeying toward this land for the last 50 years or so, or close to that. They come into the land, and they're going to begin to conquer the land that God had given them. God gives very specific instructions. When you go into the land and when you go into this battle, I want you to take any of the spoil for yourselves and these things. And then all of a sudden they, they win a big battle, but then all of a sudden they lose a battle. What is happening? How can we be losing a battle? Joshua goes to prayer. And this is what we read. One man had disobeyed the Lord, a man by the name of Achan. And he had took the spoil for himself. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Babylon, Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and I took them. He disobeyed the Lord. First day, essentially, or week, we'll say, in the new land. And God's response, we read, and Joshua said, why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you. And all Israel stoned Achan. Saddest part of the story, he stole all these goods that he shouldn't have had. And he went home to his house, his tent, dug a hole in the ground, put a little carpet over him, and that's what he did with his stolen goods. He couldn't put them up on a mantle. Hey, everybody, look. Because that would reveal his crime. That would reveal what he did. So he disobeyed the Lord for what? For what? To bury it in the ground. And God's judgment on him was strong. He was put to death. We read a thousand years after, so about 300 years later, but a thousand years after Abraham. And this was during the days of King David. And there was a fellow by the name of Uzzah who reached out his hand and steadied the Ark of God. So the Ark of the Covenant of God had been taken, and it had been brought to an opposing uh, village of one of the foreign countries. And the children of Israel, they went and they got that, and they brought that, they were going to set it up. Eventually, this would lead to the setting up of the temple there in Jerusalem, all these kinds of things. And it's making its way back uh, to the land of the Israelites. It's on a cart. It shouldn't have been, but it was. And the cart stumbled, and the ark was about to fall to the ground. Uzzah, a man there, reaches his hand, and he catches the ark so that it, it can't fall. Now, you recall, nobody, no one, was allowed to tar touch the ark of God. They actually had these rings, four rings that came off of the four corners, and poles were put through those rings, and the priest would carry the poles. The priest would carry the poles, but they themselves weren't even allowed to touch the ark. And here is Uzzah doing what I would say is a good thing. I don't want it crashing down and breaking. Reaches out and touches it. And the scripture says, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Now, when you put those three accounts together, what we discover is that in each instance, this was a moment, a time of important new beginnings for God's people, where something new was being inaugurated. It was a new era for God's people that was being ushered in. That's exactly where we are in Acts chapter 5. It's the origin of God's church. It's the beginning of something new. And it's, it would seem 
that God was establishing at the start of each one of those ventures just how seriously he considered the purity of the relationship that he had with his people and how they responded to and whether they obeyed and disobeyed his commands. And so the result in Acts 5, it's the same result as Leviticus 10 and Joshua 7 and 2 Samuel chapter 6. The people were filled with a holy fear because of the way in which Ananias and later on Sapphira were dealt with. God's judgment had accomplished his purposes. The people were filled with fear. The young man rose, wrapped him up, it says in verse 6, and they carried him out and they buried him. Verse 7, we read real quickly, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have lied? Agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you. And immediately she fell down at his feet. She breathed her last. And when the young men came and they found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And again, notice, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all of those who had heard of these things. Three hours later, Sapphira comes in. Peter cuts to the chase. He says, welcome, tell me whether you sold it. Did you sell this for $100,000? Is, is that what you sold this for? And she says, yes, 100000 bucks, so to speak. Remember back in verse 2, it tells us that Ananias did what he did with his wife's full knowledge. They were in on this together. And so she wasn't ignorant. Yep, that's what he told me. All right, she knows exactly what they sold it for and exactly what they told the people that they, they got for this particular property. And Peter gives her an opportunity to avoid sinning in the same way as her husband did. All right, he lays it out there, and she could have said, well, to be honest with you, and I, we were thinking about telling you it was more, but just to be honest with you, we got quite a bit more, and we put it aside, and we're going to use that as we go into our golden year. You know, she could have come, tr come true, whatever the phrase is, uh, come clean here. Sadly, the same thing her husband wanted, she wanted. She wanted to be honored and praised by others. She wanted to be something that she was not, super spiritual, super generous, super giving. And rather than becoming super spiritual, super generous, super giving, she just figured she'd take the easy right way there and lie about it. I think a lot of churches make these mistakes. They play on these things. And so we're, we're going to start a list over here on the side, and we're going to have the top 10 givers of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. And we're going to do it computerized so it can change every week. And we're going to put it up there. And then people will sit and they'll look and they'll say, oh, man, I want to get on that list. Because I notice people on that list, everyone goes, hi, Mr. Jones. I'm so glad you're here today. And they just feed into it. We don't talk a lot about giving here. I don't know what people give to the church. I hope you understand that. So if you give to our church and I don't come over and say to you, thank you so much for your gift that we received this week. It's because I don't know what people, and I don't want to know what people give to this church. Because I know my tendency would be to be extra nice with you, and let's not offend her or him, because boy, we really need their giving. So we don't play that game. And we don't try to manipulate people, and we don't try to feed your flesh or anything like that. And if that offends you, deal with it. 
That's a problem within you that you want people to think more highly of you than reality, right? Now there's a little rant. I'm sorry. She wants people to think. She said, yep, that's how much we gave it for. Peter says you lied. Here's what I hope we can take away from this. I'm going to wrap it up. It's like 700 degrees in here. Alrighty. Um, Will's not here to put the air on, and it's in my office, and I can't put it on. I'm up here. So deal with it. That's the, that's the title of today's sermon. Just deal with it. All right, so notice this. All along the way, Ananias and Sapphira could have turned back. That's the way it is with sin. Very rarely do we jump off the cliff and we're in the midst of sin. The reality is we begin to move closer and closer and closer and closer to the cliff before jumping off. And anywhere along this process, Ananias and Sapphira, they could have stopped. The thoughts could have come into their mind. They're like, no, we're not going there. And they could have stopped. They could have talked about it for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour. And then one of them could have been in the bathroom, came out and said, you know what I was thinking? This is stupid. Let's not do it. They could have been walking to the church with the money, with the big plan. All right, remember, 35000 is what we got. Remember the number, 35. And one of them could have said, you know what? Let's not do this. Anywhere along the way, they could have stopped. I'm reminded of King David. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he goes up on the roof. Why does he go up on the roof at that particular time of day? Well, there's that lady. She loves to take her midday bath. You know, perhaps today she won't be there, so it'll be okay. And, you know, I could hang over here on this side of the house. I think I'll just stroll over to this side of the house where I can look down on that lady's um, lawn where she's taking her bath in the backyard. All along the way, David could have stopped. David catches a glimpse of her. At some point in time, David decides to take a second glance at her. Then David decides, go get that lady for me. All along the way, he could have stopped. He could have turned back, but he doesn't. I think that's so important because we, we start going down the path of sin and we say to ourselves, and maybe this is one of those flaming darts of the enemy, but we say to ourselves, or we have entered into our mind, well, I've gone too far now. I might as well just go a little bit further. That's not true. You can stop it there and turn and return and go back to the place where you need to be. The scripture. You turn to the word. Turn to truth. Begin to quote scripture. If you don't know scripture, begin to read scripture. Get into the Psalms. Get into the things that point to Christ. Paul will tell you in the book of Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, think on these things. So even if your mind is going down that path, stop it, think on something new, think on something fresh. I'll end with this. Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4. Cain brings his offering to the Lord. The Lord says, huh. Abel brings his offering to the Lord. The Lord says, bless you, brother. I don't know if that's what he said, but he says, I like it. The Lord accepted Abel's offering. He didn't accept Cain's offering. You can read the passage. You can um, dig into as to the reason why. What I want you to think about, Cain's response. Cain's mad. He's angry. And the Lord approaches Cain. He says to him, why are you angry? Why is your face changed? You got an angry face. 
he says here. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. When I read that word, sin is crouching at the door, I'm reminded of what Peter said when he said, sin is like a, a roaring lion looking who, at whom it might devour. At any point, Cain could have turned back. At any point, Sapphira could have turned back. Peter gives her an opportunity even, but she doesn't. And she goes forward and she sins. Verse 10, immediately she falls down at his feet and breathes her last. And when the young men come in, they find her dead, they carry her and they bury her with her husband. As we read in verse 9, these two, Ananias and Sapphira, they agreed to put God to the test. Again, I don't know if they were believers that strayed into hypocrisy or if they were unbelievers posing the whole time. But one way or another, they put the Lord to the test. They presumed on the goodness and the kindness of God, that it wouldn't matter to him. And they died, both of them. That should give each one of us pause, shouldn't it? Verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church. There was this sense of awe in the presence of God, a sense of awe. God is not indifferent to our sins. And so if you're playing around with sin, if you're playing the fool, if you're playing the hypocrite, please get right before the Lord. May God grant every one of us the great fear that came over this church. May that come over every one of us that names the name of Christ as well. If you're pretending to be something that you are not, not that you're perfect, but that you're putting on a mask to be something that you are not, may the fear of God wash over your soul. If you're presuming on the kindness of God, may the fear of God wash over your soul. I'll end with this verse, book of Hebrews. It says, today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Amen? Let me pray for us. Before we pray, why don't we just silently have a time of prayer? Speak to the Lord about an area or maybe a few areas in your life that the Lord brought to mind this morning. Maybe areas that you've been playing the hypocrite. Areas where you've been presuming on the kindness of God. Father, you're gracious, you're kind. But Lord, we never want to be those that presume on your mercy or on your grace or your kindness. Lord, we never want to be those that approach uh, our walks with you with this mindset that, yeah, I know God said that, but God doesn't really care about that. Because Lord, you have uh, evidenced in your word that indeed you do. And so, Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit, though we are a hundred or so different individual people in this room and many watching online that are different, separate, individual, one from the other, Lord, the wonder of your 
uh, Holy Spirit, is that you can work and minister into each one of our hearts equally, uniquely, at the same time. And no doubt, Lord, you've been um, doing that this morning. You've been impressing a, an area on a lot of our hearts here this morning, maybe every one of our hearts here this morning. And so, Father, what we want to do is we want to bring and lay that down and say, you know what, this is just sin, and I confess it as such. I turn from it. I repent. I go in a new direction. But I pray that you would give us sort of the courage to do that, the wisdom to do that. For the deliberate walking in sin, Lord, ends in destruction ultimately one way or another. So Lord, may the fear of God come upon each one of us in a fresh way this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.